humanity always transformed the world around us, uh, not only for growing food or for shelter, but also literally taking matter and shaping it in a way that was more uh, appropriate for our needs. This kind of manufacturing has been going on for thousands of years. And just as with every other economic activity, this is also becoming digital. Digital manufacturing, whether it is 3D printing proper, um, as we've come to learn and, and, and love it in the past few years, or other ways of making manufacturing smarter, the Internet of Things, uh, or Industry 4.0, as it is called in, in, in Europe, are uh, really promising to allow us to more efficiently control matter. So, Hannes, what do you think? Uh, is this going to take over industries and transform them uh, really profoundly? Hi, David. Yes, definitely. This is a shift. The humans, we've also always wanted to operate and modify matter around us, design it for our purposes. And the tools we have at hand are increasingly powerful. Digital manufacturing, 3D printing, and ultimately self-assembling systems are really doing this for us. And we are going through a new stage in the industrial area uh, due to the digitalization of all these technologies. So uh, as you always know, my favorite uh, application is that we will turn biological machines into manufacturing devices. So I hope to touch upon that in our conversation today. I am sure we will. Uh, for me, it was uh, fascinating that uh, when uh, MakerBot, uh, which was one of the um, leading producers of uh, uh, 3D printers for the consumer space um, came onto the market. Originally, they had open source printers uh, that you could buy from them as a kit uh, or download actually the specs and, and build yourself. Uh, if you were lazy, you could also buy them uh, ready-made. Uh, later, then these were substituted by closed source uh, versions um, that uh, created a, quite a ruckus uh, in the community that uh, was accustomed to the more uh, open and inclusive uh, attitude from the uh, producer before. Well, the reason they were born is not technological. The reason they were born is because some fundamental patents in the field of additive manufacturing expired. And uh, this allowed uh, alternative players, uh, rather than just the owners of the patents, uh, to come onto the market. Um, the consumer um, hype around uh, 3D printing um, uh, did not deliver on its promise, as it uh, frequently happens uh, in our field, where people enthusiastic about uh, what uh, the possibilities of a new technology uh, are go beyond and they really believe in their own uh, uh, utopistic vision and actually those people don't even mind uh, that the reality lets them down because oftentimes just the acceleration of learning is enough it doesn't have to become something that is sustainable beyond uh, a closed or a limited group of enthusiasts 
So that is um, uh, the consumer part of, of 3D printing. But of course, the industrial part of uh, 3D printing is now becoming um, a, a must-have component of uh, uh, those manufacturing processes that want to be able to iterate rapidly, learning from the market, and rather than having um, production runs of millions of pieces, maybe they reduce the productions uh, a little bit, but are able to adapt much more rapidly to uh, the demands, uh, uh, not only in time, but also with local varieties around the world. I'm curious to hear, David, why do you think 3D manufacturing as a consumer trend, why did it, why did it fail? Um, the level of sophistication of the machines uh, is uh, uh, such that um, uh, the limited uh, number of uh, uh, of, of um, materials, filaments, mm. yeah, the materials that they can they can work on, uh, the extreme uh, uh, finicky nature of the machines themselves that uh, often break. Uh, as they heat the filament and they release the droplets, uh, the the head uh, that uh, that releases the droplets is very delicate, mm -hmm. uh, and it has to be substituted. Uh, the machines themselves have to be um, carefully calibrated, uh, and uh, this calibration process takes time. Uh, also, the um, uh, time that it takes to prepare uh, a given piece. Uh, is is considerable. You know, it can be hours. Yes. Uh, and in the meantime, the machine has to be monitored because in the middle of a five-hour-long printing process, it could go out of calibration and then the piece, uh, you know, just uh, goes on, but it is, it is not usable. So all of these uh, uh, were contributing factors for the... Um, the, the 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 consumer level machines not go beyond uh, those initial enthusiasts. So was it a, an example of the the hype curve again hitting us? I mean, we are enthusiasts; we could see it happening, and we envisioned all these uses for the technology. And uh, maybe our minds ran ahead of of of, of what the tools in front of us. Will we catch up? Or this is fairly common. Yeah, this is fairly common in in exponential times uh, where. Uh, a, a more modest technology can deliver better results uh, than not the uh, advanced technology. This was the case with digital uh, cameras mm. that uh, clearly were inferior to chemical cameras uh, um, in the in the eighties or in the nineties, and and even in the early two um, thousands. But uh, the speed of development of the digital cameras caught on. And uh, after a bit, uh, no chemical camera could uh, could compete. Uh, if you took into uh, account the combination of uh, um, being uh, affordable, uh, of um, being convenient, uh, and uh, uh, more recently in pure performance as well. Yeah, I mean the whole the whole process of of taking pictures nowadays and post processing them. Compare the paper pictures of old with cutting and uh, you know looking at them and uh, working on them and the way we can modify digital images is of course way superior. Uh, another trend, just quick deviation from the main topic uh, that I enjoy is the access now to broad spectrum cameras, which digital photography has given us. 
it's so easy now to take infrared, uh, ultraviolet, and, and multispectrum images. And we can suddenly use these cameras for a lot of interesting applications. And one cool recent example is, of course, this um, eye diagnostics uh, thing that you can add to a phone and you can use it to uh, diagnose eye disease. Uh, for example, traveling in, in the countryside in developing countries. Um, and um, uh, this is just many applications that are coming out of smart cameras as, as a platform. So, so getting out of the analogy from digital cameras, um, it, the performance of 3D printers f uh, based on uh, metal uh, synthesis, um, fusing directly uh, metal pieces uh, for various uh, kinds of applications today is clearly superior to what traditionally could be obtained uh, by working uh, the, the metal carving out uh, pieces. And as a demonstration, more and more pieces in an airplane where you fly are 3D printed. Currently, hundreds of pieces of an airplane are, are 3D printed, including pieces of the engine that uh, now contains uh, parts that uh, could be hard or impossible to produce with traditional methods that last longer are cheaper, are lighter, uh, and lead to uh, reduced fuel consumption. So this is an example where uh, the additive manufacturing process clearly uh, is, is, is winning. And we are also seeing a, a, an ecosystem uh, developing. A, a company that I'm an advisor of is called Authentize. Um, it has been uh, born out of uh, Singularity University, and Authentize has a platform for supporting the digital manufacturing process from uh, setting up uh, the designs to uploading them to the 3D printing machines, monitoring uh, while the uh, parts are printed, and very importantly, assuring that uh, during all these steps, everything happens to the uh, maximum degree of uh, accountability and uh, in, a, in a verifiably um, complete manner so that the pieces cannot be you know, tampered with or corrupted or, or whatever else. Brilliant. Excellent. Inspiring example. So what's your favorite application of 3D printing as of 2017, David? Well, um, uh, we have had software as a service for a long time. Right, so we now have hardware as a service. Uh, specifically in three D printing, uh, Shapeways is a leading three uh, D printing as a service company, where creators of all kinds upload their beautiful designs, and anybody can uh, buy them um, with variations. Uh, my son uh, Cosimo, I have three children, and he's the middle son, uh, is passionate about three uh, D printing. And for the past several years, um, he designed and then 3D printed um, in metal, so on, on Shapeways necessarily, because we don't have a metal printer in-house, a, a, a 3D heart uh, to uh, give to his girlfriend on Valentine's uh, that uh, uh, is unique, you know, and it is a beautiful gift. 
it, it, it really expresses the creativity and, and everything else. Now, this is, in my opinion, not only very nice, but it also exemplifies that contrary to 19th century and in, in you know, 100, almost 100% 20th century industrial economics, today the value uh, starts to accrue to the person who is creating an object rather than being uh, extracted in proportion to the capital investment required setting up the production plant. Uh, because for a 3D printer, it doesn't matter whether the object that it is printing is stupid or ugly or useless on one hand, or on the other hand, it is beautiful and uh, valuable and, and has very high functionality. It is exactly the same. And the cost of setting up the one or the other is also the same. But rather than setting up something that is fine-tuned for producing exactly the same part a million times over with no flexibility, a 3D printing efficient manufacturing process as a service can print stuff unique in, in one or ten or a thousand pieces uh, very rapidly evolving towards uh, new kinds of applications. And whether one, ten, or a hundred, the value that the person designing those products um, or parts created mostly accrues to the person rather than to the owner of the manufacturing plant. It's true. Uh, uh, excellent examples. I think that there is a complement dimension to traditional manufacturing and 3D printing for large volumes and long production lines traditional manufacturing still has powerful benefits of scale so uh, 3D printing and localized and personalized uh, production uh, has a niche and it's a growing niche but it's still very hard to compete with traditional large-scale manufacturing systems simply in terms of economy uh, for producing thousands and thousands of similar units. That's right. And when you need those millions of units, yes, of course, why not? And, and you know, 99% of the time you will send the order to the Chinese and then they will deliver your order. And then hopefully you will need exactly the million units that you ordered rather than half a million because it means that you threw... Uh, the savings away in, in producing too much, right? Um, a, another component to this is also uh, how more and more objects are naturally becoming nodes on the Internet of Things, very simply because the marginal cost of adding storage, communication, computation, um, uh, capacity like uh, uh, sensors and actuators uh, both for outside information and for the internal state of the object itself, uh, this marginal cost is trending to zero. Uh, my favorite example in this is how 10 years ago I would speak to companies like Cisco and, and others talking about IoT, and I would tell them, listen, uh, everything will be internet connected. Your chair, your door will be internet connected. And people would 
you know, smirk or, 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 or laugh or whatever. They, they wouldn't take me seriously. But today, when I am at a conference and I, and I have people who are coming uh, from afar, I ask them, did you sleep in a hotel the night before? And was your key a big brass uh, thing that uh, was uh, designed so that you couldn't put it in your pocket uh, walking out and you left it at the, at the reception desk? Or was it rather um, a very nimble, programmable electronic key card in plastic and the door had a sensor? And when you touched the card to the door, the door communicated with the server, querying the server can this person enter the room? And if the answer was positive, the door opened. And doesn't that mean that I was right? Your door is now internet connected. And Amazon is, is selling a, 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 a kit that allows you to connect your door to the internet. Uh, this has been announced just a few weeks ago. Uh, it is a kit of a door um, key as well as a camera that you are supposed to set up in your living room so that when uh, the Amazon packages get delivered, they can be deposited inside your house rather than uh, in front of your front door. We will see how um, successful this is going to be, whether our perception of privacy is going to be rewired by Amazon and all of us will say, oh yeah, that's perfectly fine. That is exactly what we want. Or some people will say, no, never, thank you. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, these are examples of how uh, everyday objects are now being uh, connected to the internet. And we are still just in the beginning of the internet of things, of the rollout of the internet of things, because we can imagine, that, oh my God, I'm going to let a stranger in to deliver a package uh, into my home. But when you think like that, you don't actually get your hand around the idea that you can lock all the other internal doors in your home. So you will actually just give the person access to the kitchen and the refrigerator if they want to put groceries in your home. But you can close all the other rooms because it will be so easy to connect and monitor them. I think that we are heading towards a society where my favorite example is that the pizza cartons will be locked. So they will be personalized and only the person with the right fingerprint or chip implant or credit card will in fact be able to unlock a pizza carton for a pizza that costs $3 because it will be so cheap to do it. Well, it, actually it, it already exists because there are in San Francisco robots uh, that deliver pizza or other kind of food uh, and those uh, uh, self-driving cars, which very appropriately are not shaped like cars today, but they have uh, a shape that is uh, uh, adapted to whatever they need to do, uh, go very slowly on the sidewalks and uh, they contain the food. And uh, when they get uh, to the place, they are opened uh, with a code on, on, on your smartphone. So, yep. Um, your forecast uh, already is being implemented. This is the connected world. Uh, however, going back to, or perhaps connecting the ideas uh, of, of food and, and 3D printing is a, one of my favorite topics. And uh, unfortunately, we haven't seen enough applications of this, in my view. At, here at Epicenter, where I work in the daytime, we uh, when we have events, we try to 3D print uh, chocolates. Uh, we often do it in the logo of a, of a visiting company or, or we do images that they can relate to. And it's, it's a fun gadget. But I'm still waiting for my 3D printed pizza 
I mean, that is a product that would certainly be very well suitable. Why do I should I have a little robot to drive a pizza to me when I can ultimately print it uh, in my own oven? Absolutely. Um, talking about uh, biological uh, components, uh, certainly the Internet of Things uh, has, in my opinion, two big challenges. One, uh, our electronics today is made out of alien material, uh, the rare Earths coming uh, from the asteroids that are uh, unknown uh, to uh, the biological ecosystem evolved uh, on Earth uh, for 4 billion years. And we cannot afford to spread the trillions of sensors if they are going to pollute the biosphere. So before the Internet of Things delivers its promise, either we have to uh, make sure that anything that breaks is collected and recycled uh, practically at a hundred percent rate, or as an alternative, that we start thinking about what it means to take advantage of the ultimate digital manufacturing process we call life. Because of course, now we understand that life is digital. DNA and uh, viruses and the bacteria and the cells um, respond to a digital manufacturing language and synthetic biology uh, is uh, promising not only to help um, our health but also potentially to reprogram uh, ever more intricately and deeply the biosphere uh, having it compenetrate with the technosphere uh, where we understand the mechanisms of life and we can design entire ecosystems uh, to correspond to our needs uh, rather than having to intervene in, in previous ecosystems where we certainly screw things up. Uh, doing these experiments with our open eyes, helped with our AI co-processors uh, so that we can make them as complex as they need to be so that they are rich uh, in expressing uh, all the variety uh, of uh, the biological life uh, we see uh, around us. And, and since these um, uh, digital manufacturing processes are self-replicating, as, as you mentioned at the beginning, uh, that is going to be very interesting to, to see. And of course, uh, uh, full with uh, all kinds of uh, hopefully non-fatal pitfalls. <laughs> Hopefully non-fatal indeed. So I, I think it's great that you bring up this distinction between the ecosphere and the technosphere because my personal view is there is no limit between those two. They are already one and the same. Already we are living in, in an age where we are modifying the chemical makeup of the oceans and the, the makeup of the atmosphere and we are doing this through the application of technology. It's just that we are often not recognizing this process that it's actually we are causing these changes and we oh, should accept oh, absolutely. that absolutely absolutely humanity the whole ecosphere yeah, yeah humanity sure. has been doing uh, geoengineering uh, forever uh, actually not only us uh, uh, even bacteria are doing geoengineering uh, but uh, bacteria have a hard time recognizing what they are doing um, they 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 cannot do their experiments with uh, with their eyes open uh, we have that power and we have to take advantage of that power um, and we have to take responsibility of correct. what we're doing because we're still in some ways on the responsibility level of of bacteria 
oh, we're just putting out these things and uh, then we're debating whether that is having an effect or not. So, of course, we need to take responsibility for the stewardship of of the the ecosphere and the technosphere and manage yeah, the, 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 the The way I think about it is that uh, uh, our uh, extreme respect from for nature uh, is, is programmed into us because we recognize how ancient it is and we are drawn to to respect the elderly uh, but uh, nature actually uh, is is uh, uh, wise to a limited degree exactly because it doesn't seek but local maxima whatever it is optimizing for as soon as it finds a solution it stops we on the other hand uh, uh, function at a at a different level and we are able to uh, examine the solution space and uh, search for uh, global maxima, at least within uh, our, uh, within the means of the resources that are, that we are able to dedicate to this search. So uh, rather than stopping at the first solution, we may actually see that that is a kind of an, uh, of a dead end, that it would be much better, uh, you know, not to poke a hole in the retina uh, where uh, our um, uh, nerves are mounted, yeah, are, are mounted uh, badly in in the wrong direction, and then in order to connect uh, our brain with the, with the sensors, uh, we have to uh, bring the, uh, the the nerves and the nerve fibers through the uh, retina itself, like like nature de- decided it should be, uh, which is kind of ridiculous. Um, there are some, uh, some certain some funny design uh, wire flaws in, in the human body, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 so what I what I uh, share with you is this vision that the technosphere and the biosphere uh, intermingle, but actually I believe that the biosphere uh, is a subset of the technosphere. I give two examples uh, to illustrate this. One is that. As you go deep, solar energy cannot generate life after a few meters. Uh, But we can dig as deep as we want and we can bring light down with LEDs and then grow food in three dimensions below the surface of the earth, feeding, um, you know, an unlimited number of people if we want to, limited only by the solar energy available but the solar energy that doesn't need to be only the amount that uh, uh, reaches the surface of the earth because we can put solar panels in space and then uh, transfer uh, energy as microwave so uh, actually uh, we are already and this is the second part extending the biosphere also um, going out from the surface of the earth where the lack of oxygen uh, is the limiting factor after three, four thousand meters, life cannot uh, extend, but the technosphere can. And yes, today it is only four, five, six people who live on orbit, but four, five, six people living on orbit is infinitely more than zero. And they are the beachhead uh, in a new generation of uh, technological solutions merging with biological solutions, extending biosphere through the help of the technosphere 
to to enormously larger degrees than today. And this beautifully illustrates your point, David, of uh, that the Earth biosphere only produces local uh, optimum solutions. So yes, uh, our local planet here is optimized for uh, um, for biological life as, as we know it, but. Uh, it's certainly not optimized for a universal spread of life. So that takes uh, a being with a different vision and capabilities, such as mankind, to actually bring our robots and machines and life forms onto all the other bodies of the solar system. And and, and this, and this connects us back uh, uh, to uh, digital manufacturing, because there is another startup that uh, was born at Singularity University called Made in Space. Uh, they designed a 3D printer that was delivered uh, to the International Space Station. Today, actually, there are two. Uh, and these 3D printers uh, work uh, uh, in, in uh, microgravity, zero gravity. Uh, and uh, um, they allow um, parts to be printed in space uh, so that if somebody break, something breaks, you don't have to wait for the next uh, delivery, but you can produce it locally. Are and you able to space. explain the technicalities? Sorry, are you able to explain the technicalities of how, how does it work with three D printing in space? David? When there is no gravity, how can things take form? Yeah, al already the three D printers actually do not uh, take advantage of uh, gravity uh, because the droplets uh, that are deposited uh, by the nozzle uh, uh, are not uh, um, uh, they they uh, get attached. To the other, uh, to the proper places by the printing head, uh, and uh, uh, they then um, they then just stay in place, right? So mm -hmm. it is not like uh, uh, in the traditional printers, uh, um, it is gravity that is doing the work. So what Made in Space needed to do is just to make sure that the printer would work. Uh, the, 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 the kind of work that the printer does didn't need to change too much. And then the certification process, the bureaucratic and the regulatory process to be able to, to bring the printer to the uh, space station was also pretty complicated, as it happens these days, right? Sometimes uh, an innovation uh, can be done because somebody is persistent enough not only to overcome the technological uh, roadblocks, but the regulatory roadblocks uh, as well. And the social roadblocks is what we often encounter. We have all these great right. inventions, but the public acceptance is a whole other battle, which is something we can also discuss. We, we saw it in the case of 3D printers earlier here that, you know, it didn't take off because there were no uses, but in the terms of genetically modifying organisms and using uh, bacteria to produce foodstuffs, that is a strong public fear and resistance to the application of these technologies and that is perhaps even harder to crack than the uh, uh, actually solving just the technological dimension uh, of, of yeah having... yeah I, I i agree so made in space announced recently a new generation of printers these printers rather than living inside the space station will live outside the space station and as a consequence, they don't have to um, be under the constraints of all kinds of design and regulatory uh, issues that, uh, that uh, cannot allow the 3D printers uh, evolve as they should. 
just like uh, cars were horseless carriages and with today's eyes they look uh, ridiculous uh, because now they have all kinds of different shapes, 3D printers that uh, are adapted to space look more like robots. These are, are, are these have hands uh, uh, that uh, uh, move uh, much more freely than than those constrained uh, in a 3D printer that we are accustomed to see, and they don't take raw materials from Earth. They take raw materials from the moon or from the asteroids that get delivered to them from other robots, and then they create. Uh, all the infrastructure for extending space-based manufacturing. So this, in a certain sense, also becomes a self-propagating uh, machine or a self-propagating organism, very different from the ones that we uh, know on Earth, but the possibility of uh, heavy industries being space-based is, I think, uh, very exciting. Um, I think, David, would it not be fair to compare these uh, robots, 3D printing robots in space with spiders? Spiders, after all, they crawl around, they have a, they can excrete their nets. Uh, they are, in some ways, walking 3D printers that can print three-dimensional uh, structures. Beautiful. So it's, and, it, it, uh, it's, it's an image that we are well familiar with. Yeah, yeah, beautiful, beautiful. I, I think that is a, a wonderful analogy. And uh, we will see, you know, um, I, I love the images of uh, the uh, spider uh, nets and the, and the spider silk is a wonderful, incredibly strong material. So uh, I think that uh, it is a great uh, picture to envision what kind of uh, unanticipatedly beautiful structures the uh, space-based uh, robotic spiders are going to create out of material extracted from the asteroid belt. Can't wait for it. <laughs> so, uh, so I had another... Yeah, so yeah, go ahead. Go, what, no, what, please go what, ahead. What, yeah, what, what do you see? I mean, besides space, what um, industries that um, we are currently using here, on, here you know, at home do you see are being most powerfully affected by 3D printing and uh, digital manufacturing? Um, I remember when televisions were analog. Uh, they were uh, glass uh, vacuum containers whose characteristics couldn't um, scale. Um, we had uh, uh, an upper limit of uh, something like uh, 30 inches in, in uh, uh, tube, cathode tube televisions. Um, so when televisions became digital with LCD and LED screens, uh, one of the things that uh, all of us noticed is they became flat. And another is that their dimensions started to grow uh, incredibly. Uh, and with the increase of the dimensions, the prices didn't grow because, yes, the largest uh, uh, LED television and now OLED, organic uh, uh, LED televisions, are all obviously very expensive at the beginning. But uh, you just wait a year or two and, and uh, all the prices uh, trend 
to a minimum that is basically the cost of delivering them to the retail location where you pick them up. <laughs> it is, True, I'm it sitting is here watching a... It's amazing. I'm sitting here watching a three by nine meter LED screen here in my office. And uh, I mean, yeah, this is, it's not a projector screen. We can do all kinds of, of digital images. There you go. These, these screens. And, so uh, the same is now about to happen with cars. Cars were analog machines uh, with their internal combustion engines and the electric cars are digital machines. And it is not just the difference between how you fuel them uh, with gas or with electrons. Uh, just as turning televisions into digital machines did incredible things to them that wasn't possible to uh, anticipate it to a large degree, turning cars into digital machines is going to create uh, incredibly important uh, differences. Uh, together like what? with, well, um, it is not only the, 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 the fuel, but also the fact that uh, uh, digital machines, uh, nodes of the Internet of Things, being able to calculate and, and, and uh, loaded with hundreds of sensors, the self-driving cars are going to uh, decrease 10, 100, 1,000 times the cost of transporting atoms. Uh, the cost of transportation up until now has been limited by the necessity of putting a human there. And, and when you include a human in a process, that has a lower limit. It cannot go lower than something in, it, in its cost. But when you take the human out of the process, the, the, the cost plummets and just keeps going down, down, down. So today... If I tell you, oh, can you please uh, uh, bring this uh, this uh, uh, cup from Stockholm to Milan? Cup of coffee? Well, no, just the cup. Let's say maybe the cup of coffee, but let's say even just the cup. You sign a cup, and I appreciate your signing the cup with your personal signature so much that I want to have the cup. And, and you have to bring it from Stockholm to, to Milan. Well, the only way you can do it now is to put it into a, a, a you know a cardboard box and then and then have FedEx come and pick it up or DHL whoever a, an express courier, and it is probably not going to cost less than thirty dollars or maybe fifty dollars or euros to bring it from Stockholm to to to, to Milan, and you know I, I I may appreciate your your signature, but. I don't know whether I will pay 50 uh, euro for a cup with your signature on, on, on it. But uh, the self-driving atom transportation infrastructure is going to make it possible to make economical things that were not before. Um, if it doesn't have to be very fast, it can take three, four days, or maybe four or five days, instead of taking um, one day like uh, FedEx would, would, uh, would make it happen. If um, uh, the transporter uh, takes care of, of packaging flexibly, if uh, transportation is able to be done without human intervention 100%, like already is happening at the starting points where automated warehouses in the dark 
fill um, most of the orders uh, from Amazon and for groceries in, in, in the UK, one of the largest um, warehouses for groceries, is completely robotic. Those components are going to decrease the cost of transportation very, very uh, strongly. And, and, and that means that, um, yes, we may eliminate truck drivers, but maybe we will put back truck drivers or, you know, robot drivers um, in the process in the same numbers, except that the measure of what is being delivered is going to be multiplied tenfold or a hundredfold in terms of, of mass. Uh, so, so I, I think it's a beautiful image that you're painting, David, if I can just try to illustrate it. I imagine that I take this cup here in front of me, I put it in this little smart package, I simply just throw it out the window, having written your name on it. This little package will magnetically attach itself to the first you know, cluster of packages passing by. Maybe it's a car or truck or something, right down to some railway hub or something where it will just by itself attach itself to a bigger cluster by way of magnetics and it transport itself. Just like IP packages are trans traveling uh, on, on a network. And it will end up in your office, just like the email I sent you earlier will, uh, you know, have found its way through and, servers. And the way I look at this is that uh, we will be able to uh, analyze and make judgment about uh, every little piece of matter. What today we call waste or garbage is basically going to disappear, because in every home there will be eager robotic arms waiting for nothing but for a piece of discarded something to be picked up that the robotic arm will examine and then it will uh, inaudibly whistle for the next available uh, transporter to pull up and take um, you know um, a gram or 10 gram or 100 gram if it is a big piece uh, of matter agree on the value of that uh, piece of matter, formerly called garbage, and the Internet of Things uh, network will then take care of where that piece of matter will be useful. And if that um, economic transaction is only one cent, that's fine, or even less, that's perfectly fine. The network will trade with itself. Yes. For that resource, it's brilliant. That's correct. Um, and and the homes will be able to support themselves by providing resources to the network, rather than being charged for the garbage that today we throw away. And it would be amazing if this waste could be reused locally, of course. Maybe I'm too stuck in the mindset still of trying to avoid transportation, but ultimately it could go into a local bioreactor that would then provide the uh, uh, the carbs for my uh, 3D printer that prints the pizza the next week in my home. Yes, so, yes, uh, a lot of this will be decentralized. We, we, we make smaller local loops. Yeah, exactly. Yes. That's what I imagine happening. Yes. Wonderful. I think that we draw uh, great uh, uh, visions uh, far out in the in the in the future of uh, synthetic biology and the technosphere extending into space, uh, 
but we also gave some examples of uh, startups that are already working on making this uh, reality. Uh, so thank you very much for the conversation around uh, 3D printing and digital manufacturing, Hannes. I'm looking forward to our next chat. Thank you, David, and talk to you again soon.